Hey, thanks for tuning in to the First Monroe podcast. For more information on our church, visit firstmonroe.com. We hope you enjoy. All right, if you will go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. You can keep your finger there once you get there. Well, um, the pastor's out this week. The student pastor is preaching, and LSU lost last night. It is the perfect storm this morning. I'm kidding, but what I'm not kidding about is that I actually left that blank in my notes, like LSU blank last night, like there was some sort of hope in me that there was going to be a different outcome. That's what I feel the most ridiculous about. But seriously, I am very excited for us to be continuing our series, Exiles, a study through First Peter, um, this week. Um, I'm thankful for our pastor for trusting and encouraging me to lead our people today, and I will try my best not to mess it up. Um, I'm just kind of kidding there. Um, I'm from a very small town and a very small church, and I don't know if any of y'all have ever been members of a very small church. You do something special when your family's there. You introduce your family and you welcome them. My family, my Chatham and Davis family back there in the back, I'm so happy that they get to be here and hear me preach this morning. It brings my heart a lot of joy. And I know that made my mom very uncomfortable, so thank y'all for that. (laughs) But hey, before we get started this morning, we're going to do what we always do, and we are going to um, we're going to pray this morning. So I ask you if you are willing and able, if you would kneel with me, we'll pray. Father God, we are so thankful for who you are. God, we are thankful that you love us. God, I'm thankful for the truth that we sang this morning, God, that we have a living hope. God, a hope that is unwavering. God, as the song we last sang in Christ alone, God, that moment of till you return, God, I thank you the confidence that you are coming back. We have confidence in who you are. God, we have confidence in your victory. God, and we thank you for all the ways that you protect us, God, and all the grace that you give us. God, by making us your children. God, so I love you. God, I thank you for this time to open your word. God, and see the truths that are within it. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So, as I mentioned, LSU lost last night. Many of you, myself included, have not quite recovered yet. Uh, We're going to try to get over that a little bit this morning. But I know this about LSU fans. Win or lose, we were going to need something to complain about. That's probably just pretty much the truth about us. And part of that is because we're just people. The other part of that is because we're Louisianians, right? That's a hard word, Louisianians, to say, by the way. We're an incredibly passionate bunch of people. Incredibly passionate. It's something that I love about the people in this state. Something I love about the people in our church is that we're very passionate. Whether it's our teams our towns, our families, or our faith. People from the state, something about it. We just care very deeply about things. Simply said, we care and we care deeply. So before we get started this morning, I wanted to share with you something I care very deeply about. I care very, very deeply about our young people at this church. Very deeply about them. And I care about them not just because they're funny, not just because they're fun to hang out with, not just because I'm relatively close to their age, I care about them because I know how important the stage of life that they're in is. 
I know how important this developmental stage, this adolescent stage is to the life of this current generation. They're not just the next generation. They're the current generation. And I know that I made decisions, good and bad, when I was their age that have had a great effect on the man that I am today. So I care very deeply about them. I care about them using their tremendous energy and passion, which I think is God's gift to young people, their energy and their passion. I care about them using that and channeling that for the glory of God. I care very deeply about it. But there's something that that worries me. The thing that worries me is that I also care about the world that they're about to go into. I care about the world outside their schools. I care about the world inside their schools. And I care that as we continue to look, the world outside of the church seems day by day to be getting increasingly worse. Right? I think we see it everywhere. We see it happening every day in our schools, in our workplaces, in our government, in the media. And this trend isn't something that's going to stop. Some of us know that better than others. John MacArthur says this. He says, There are some of us who have lived long enough to see how much can go wrong from generation to generation. Some of us more than others know how bad this thing could get if trends continue. American society no longer supports the church as a whole. It's getting harder and harder to be a sincere and faithful believer in today's world. You see, gone are the days where some level of social status could be gained from going to church. Right? Gone are the days where the powerful businessmen and the politicians warm the seats of churches um, for the status that it gave them. You see, it's no longer trendy to be a Christian. In fact, if we're being honest, in a lot of ways it's downright inconvenient. We'll see all around us that Christians will become more and more exiles in this world, right? That can be pretty discouraging. What a bummer to lead with this morning. But I want to say that because on the other side of things like that, there's always a tremendous amount of encouragement. There is so much encouragement we we can find today and in the days to come. Since it's no longer cool to be Christian in America, we can be more assured than ever that those on the row beside us deeply want to be there. That those on the rows beside us deeply care about the church and being there. We can be more sure than ever. If not, they could be anywhere else. Literally. Things aren't closed on Sundays anymore. People could be doing anything. We're hitting the point where it's so easy to not claim Christianity anymore that those who do must either be crazy or really passionate about it. And we're in Louisiana, so it's probably a little bit of both. But think about this. Wouldn't it be just like Satan to convince us, to have the church convinced that there's no hope? Wouldn't it be just like Satan to convince us that song we sang, Living Hope, is not true? A hope for today and for the future. To convince you that the next generations, the people in these first few pews and the people still to come, to convince you that these next generations are just going to be a bunch of pushovers. That they're going to succumb to all kinds of of pressures. That they're not going to stand up for godliness or stand up for their faith. Of course He would want us to believe that. Of course He doesn't want you to have confidence. Confident that God is working in the midst of these times to raise up the next generations of the champions of the faith. What if in these coming generations, in these trying times, we see the next Billy Graham or John MacArthur or John Piper rise up from this? 
and become next church leaders and next people in the next wave of Christianity and the next wave of Christian influence that comes through our culture. The youth are like, don't look at me. (laughs) Don't look at me right now. I don't want to be Billy Graham. But here's my point. There is always encouragement to be found where Satan wants us only to be discouraged. There is always places for believers to be encouraged, and that's what I want us to to get on the table before we get going at all this morning, is that we can be encouraged in these days, in these hard times, and we can be encouraged in the hard times to come because God has never failed us. He's not in the business of failing people, and He's not going to start now. We can have confidence in who the Lord is, and we can have hope in that today. So that begs the question, How do we be sure today that we are pursuing that version of the future? How do we be sure as Christians today that the version of the future we are pursuing is where our young people are more on fire for God than they've ever been before? How do we be sure that we're raising up generations of believers who know what to do when their faith is challenged? I think very plainly we have to take advantage of these chances we have right now, take advantage of these trying times. This can be our biggest tool for the future. It really can. We ensure that we set the example for the next generations by how we respond to trying times today. So if you look in your Bibles at 1 Peter chapter 3, there are Bibles on the pew backs in front of you, and there are those on your phone as well if you want to turn or click there. Starting in verse 13. Ooh, sorry. James did something really nice today. Um, He said, hey, Alan, you can talk about suffering. And I said, oh, great. So I've really labored through this this week, and I hope you all understand that as we get going. Starting in verse 13, Peter writes this, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. There's a few ideas that I want us to take from the text today, a few ideas that I think Peter is writing to the believers that he wrote to then and believers today. The first idea is this. We need to be a people who develop a passion for our faith. We need to be developing a passion for our faith. If you look in verse 13, it uses a word that we don't see very often in Scripture. It uses a word called zealous, right? Now, we've been talking about this word with our students quite a lot over the last few weeks. I'm not going to do what James did to me last week. Put me on the spot about Greek. That made me so nervous in front of everybody. So I'm not going to do that to our students. We've talked about what zeal and what being zealous means. It means a great amount of energy, passion, or enthusiasm for a cause. For a cause or common goal. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If you are passionate about what is good? To be zealous for what's good produces a change in your life. To be enthusiastic, to be passionate, to have energy devoted to being good. And understand when we talk about being good here, we're not talking about just simply doing good deeds. We're talking about being godly, right? Having good 
faith, producing good works. To be zealous for what is good produces change. A passion for your faith produces results that are tangible. You can see them. You can tell when someone is passionate about their faith. It leads to different things. It leads to a pure lifestyle and a change in your appetite, in your spiritual appetite. Didn't change my physical appetite that much, but I'll say this. You cannot defend yourself against what you allow to remain. Right? See, a problem is we try to hold on to as many passions as we can that are simply being stumbling blocks to us progressing as Christians. Right? Thus progressing in our faith. We cannot hold on to things that are going to cause to be stumbling blocks. Because this, when the world seeks to harm or distract you, you must be sure that your passions are worth it. You have to know that what you're passionate about is worth it. That it's worth standing up for. So how do we develop this kind of zeal, this kind of enthusiasm, this kind of passion for our faith? I think we already do a pretty good job of doing this. So... Contrary to popular belief, you are not born a fan of a sports team. I don't know if you knew that. We say that all the time. We say, I was born and raised a Saints fan or an Aints fan if you're in other generations. Or I was born and raised an LSU fan. Or liars say they were born and raised Alabama fans. Um, And as much as I might say that if you cut me open that I'm going to bleed purple and gold... That is not true. Like That is scientifically impossible. In fact, if you cut me open, I'm actually going to bleed crimson. Yeah, that's awful. Gross. It makes me just shiver knowing that color is inside me. But I remember the moments that developed my passion for LSU football. Right? I remember the moments as a young child that developed the passion that I have today for that sports team. That has let me down. I remember the 2003 National Championship game against Oklahoma. That was awesome, wasn't it? Remember the 2007 National Championship game against Ohio State. That was great. I remember the bluegrass miracle in the sadness of Kentucky fans. That was awesome. I remember wearing number 72 in junior high because I wanted to be just like Glenn Dorsey, my favorite player. I remember all these things. In the same way, I remember the moments that developed my passion for my faith. I remember sitting in people's offices um, at the ULMBCM struggling about different emotions I was going through. I remember the moment I knew I needed Jesus as a freshman at ULM. I remember telling my family that I was going to be changing my major, again, to become a minister. I remember decisions that I've made every day since becoming a believer in order to remain faithful. Our passions are things that are developed over time. We are not born passionate about things. I have a passion for LSU football that was developed as a child. I have a passion for woodworking that has been recently developed as an adult. The point is, you already know how to do this. You already know what it takes to become passionate about something. Whether we realize it or not, we know how to do this. We know how to like things. Like we know how to enjoy doing things. We know how to develop passions. 
Look at the time, thoughts, and energy spent on what you're passionate about. Or the resources spent on the things that you're passionate about. The time equity put into your passions and the things that you love. Do you give that same amount to your faith? Now, that is not like a finger pointed to everyone out here because this was the hardest thing um, in this to write and to work through. Because I see so often that the things that I'm most passionate about get a lot more time than my faith a lot of times. And y'all, y'all might be perfect. I might be alone there. But I realize so often how I fall short. That my faith is just kind of something that's there and it's not something I work to remain passionate about. But we need to be. We need to be deeply passionate about because what you're passionate about is worth it. I've never met a person who was not willing to defend what they were passionate about. My friends love to say really stupid things about LSU football sometimes just to get me wound up. They think it's funny. I think they're mean. They know that I cannot help but defend LSU football. As bad as the game might be, I cannot help but defend it, right? Because I'm passionate about it. It stirs me to response, the passionate that I have. In the same way, if we're going to be people who are passionate about our faith, we need to be people who are ready to defend our faith. The concern I hear more than anything else, hands down, from young believers, but also adult believers, not off the hook here, I hear this all the time in our conversations and in our studies or things like this. If I stand up for my faith, people in my life are not going to like it. If I really stand firm for my faith, if I really stand up for what I believe in, there are people who aren't going to like it. Well, yeah, that's right. Does this happen in the Christian life? Absolutely. You know what? And I don't blame people. Because think about this. Think about what you would do if someone that you knew very well, if their beliefs stood in direct contrast to yours or what you had always thought or believed. It would be pretty hard to maintain that relationship, wouldn't it? That friendship or relationship. That would be something that would be difficult to try to get past. However... We can't buy into this lie that we've kind of adopted that suffering is just always going to be the entire life of the believer. What we see in this passage, we see it talking about suffering twice, but the type of suffering that Peter's writing about is not the kind that he endured. It's not the kind of physical beating or things like that or being jailed that other people have gone through in Scripture and in actual today, present life. He's talking about this kind of suffering that comes from being ridiculed. The kind of social suffering that comes from being outcast. The kind of suffering that comes from being slandered or reviled. It's hard to deal with. But some of us have developed this belief that defending our faith is only going to lead to struggling and suffering. That if I really stand up, if I really stand firm in my faith, it's just going to make everything hard for me. Everything's going to be awful. People are going to hate me. I'm going to be an outcast. We tell ourselves this over and over. Now, suffering does happen. I don't want to diminish that. But this life is so much more than suffering. See, Peter's language speaks to the idea that suffering is something that is not to be logically expected. He says, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer. Peter knew better than anyone what potential suffering could await believers. But he knew better than anyone 
the blessings awaiting those who would suffer, those who would suffer and struggle and work for their faith. He knew better than anyone the blessings that would come from that. Think about this. Think about the life of the disciples. The life of the people who worked and ministered with Jesus. Would we say that their lives were blessed? Let's really think about it. Would we say that the lives here on earth of the disciples were blessed? I think we'd want to. I think we'd want to really hard. But when you start to look at things, it can be kind of discouraging. They saw tremendous heartache. They saw Jesus betrayed from one of their very own. They saw Jesus beaten. They saw him killed. They were beaten. They were rejected. They lived their entire lives as nomads. They left their families and friends. They left their careers. They were imprisoned. And many of them were martyred, facing deaths that none of us can ever imagine. But know this, church, they were tremendously blessed. And they were blessed because they knew Jesus. They traveled with Jesus. They touched Him. They told stories with Him. They ate with Him. They saw Him perform miracles. They learned from Him how to perform miracles Himself. They were taught by Him. They were saved by Him. And they took on the scariest thing this life has to offer. Death. With confidence because they knew what was to come. They were going to be with Him again. As hard as their lives were and as much suffering as they endured in this life, their lives were blessed because they knew Jesus. Church, that's the same for us today. We as people who know Christ are tremendously blessed because of who Jesus is. Because in the same way these disciples got to see Him face to face, we as believers have Him, we have the Holy Spirit with us always. We are tremendously blessed as people of God. And you know what tremendously blessed people should not do? Live in fear. Fear will handicap a believer that is meant to be empowered. Fear will hold back people that are meant to go tell people about the joy and the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. But if we're convinced that any possible struggling, any possible suffering, any possible unfun things here on earth are not worth doing that, then we're always going to be only living out a, a fraction of what this Christian life is. The men and women who followed Jesus knew real suffering. Unlike the verbal or social suffering that's in this passage of Scripture, the kind, they knew the kind that we've avoided here in America over the last few centuries. They knew the kind of suffering that we've read about in other countries. They knew what it was like. But they knew that blessings come from a life devoted to their faith. They knew the blessing of Christian love and fellowship. They knew the blessing of a relationship with God. And they knew the immense blessing of an eternity with Him. These weren't people who lived in fear. These are people who live with confidence. They live bold lives. But ultimately, we need to be people who do more than just talk about our faith reactionally. The Scripture speaks to giving a defense. Basically, someone has made some sort of verbal attack or something. We need to be people who do more than just talk about our faith when people ask us about it or when people say something mean about our faith. 
That's not all this is. If that's the only time that we're saying anything, it's probably not very good. In reading this passage this week, there were two words that completely changed its meaning for me. If you look at verse 15, it says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. God, those words are annoying. Because think about this, church. When's the last time that you were slandered? As it speaks about here. When's the last time you were verbally persecuted? And really, not just someone cut a side eye at you in the Walmart parking lot and said, that's not very Christian. That's not verbal persecution. When's the last time you've been purposefully outcast because of your faith? It's probably been a very long time. If ever, if we're being honest. But if you did, I bet your reaction, you didn't want to respond with gentleness and respect, right? We have this tendency. We have a fight or flight mode as people. We want to stand up for ourselves when things get hard, when it's time to defend ourselves. We want to stand up for ourselves. But Peter said no. <laughs> Peter's point is not that believers would be really nice people with a lot of friends. Peter's point was that people would continually evangelize, that people would be sharing their faith. You see, this passage is about people sharing their faith in the wake of horrible and hard circumstances. That's what this is about. This is about people standing firm on the Word of God when the circumstances don't make it convenient. This is about people telling people about Jesus when it's the last thing you want to do. When people revile your character, when they slander your name, love them like Jesus. Man, that's really hard to do. But that's what he's telling them to do. That's what he's telling us to do. But Peter understood this. Peter understood that conflict provides an excellent opportunity to share your faith. You know, oftentimes people people criticize what they don't understand. Right? Right? People can be very critical of what they don't understand. People have a lot of misconceptions about Christianity today. A lot of misconceptions. Many people have been burned by the church. Many people have felt slandered by the church. Reviled by the church. This has just been something that uh, the church has had to get through. The church, and I'm not talking, understand when I say the church, I'm talking about more than just us in this room. The church has had to move past this. Over the last few decades, the church has had a hard time with those two words, gentleness and respect. You see, gentleness and respect are not conditional upon if their lifestyle suits our comfort. Right? Gentleness and respect did not come with if after it. It was just said. Treat people with gentleness and respect. The church has had a habit of avoiding what is messy. Because it is messy to treat people with gentleness and respect. It means bringing people into a closer connection and relationship than sometimes we are comfortable doing. Because if we know anything from the world today, you know, There were times where I just felt like everyone was so similar. I don't know anymore. 
Seems like there's so many different things that can separate people and make people different today, right? It's hard and it is messy to develop relationships with someone who's really different than you. But you know what, church? That is not a good enough excuse to not do it. That is not a good enough excuse. We need to be willing to get messy. I mentioned that my family is here from Chatham. Y'all have heard me talk about Chatham a little bit and how much I just love growing up in like a small town. Um, I absolutely love that as a kid. And one of the things that I learned and I very much appreciate from my family very much is I learned what it looks like to do hard work. I learned what it looks like to do hard work. Now they might be rolling their eyes because I'm the preacher boy. So it looks like I've taken the, I've taken kind of the, the turn around the hard work is what it really looks like. But I come from a family that's full of a lot of people who really blue collar, worked hard our whole life. You know, and I was that little boy who kind of didn't like the mud, didn't like any of that too much. But I was always watching. And that is stuff that has followed me into my adult life. That sometimes hard work is really messy. When I was in college um, and I was working in ministry, um, I needed to replace the brakes on my car. I needed to do a full brake job. And I called and got a quote from a fine local establishment, and I gasped. It was so much money. It was, it's, would have still been more money than I've ever spent on anything in my life. And I said, I'm going to have to figure out how to do this on my own. So got the parts and sat down one day and just labored through. My dad helped me laboring through this. And I learned very quick, probably two minutes into this, that I was going to get filthy. There was going to be no way to avoid it. I was going to get brake fluid all over me, and that stuff's awful. I was going to get corrosion and stuff all over my hands, and that stuff's gross. And it seems like anytime you pick up a wrench or a socket set, your knuckles are going to get busted wide open, right? And as soon as I got started, I realized very quick, this is going to get messy. But if I try to avoid the messy work of this, I'm not going to do it right. I've picked up woodworking and um, here recently in life, um, and that same principle holds true. If I'm making something or if I'm making a piece of furniture or whatever, and I'm just trying to avoid getting stain or finish on me, or if I'm just trying to avoid getting sawdust all over me, I'm going to be really inefficient. At the end of the day, I'm not going to do much. To do a job and to do it well means we have to be willing to get messy. Church, when we talk about getting messy, we're talking about these relationships that are really, really hard. We're talking about these people who are real different from us. Because it is one thing if someone walks into the church and if they've got their problems, maybe you don't know about it, or maybe they, maybe they haven't lived too different from, from other Christians for their whole life, but they've just been missing a relationship with Jesus. They come, they try it out, they decide, you know what, I need a relationship with Jesus. They walk down the front, talk to the staff, they get saved, we hoop and holler, we baptize them. That's awesome. We celebrate that. That's not much work <laughs> that went into that, though. We celebrate it when it's easy. But I've learned in life, the joy that comes from laboring over, praying for someone to know Jesus, hard conversations, defending the faith when it takes it, having them be mad at me when they don't like having to hear these hard things that you have to say, knowing that you might never see it come to fruition. 
But I've had the joy in ministry to see people who I've labored over. I've suffered for. I've gotten messy for. Seeing them come to know Christ, church, there is nothing like it. There is absolutely nothing like it. Why do we let that be so rare? Why do we let that be so rare? We have the best news that's ever been heard. And it is our responsibility and gentleness and respect to do the messy work of ensuring that people hear about this faith that we say has changed us. This hope that we say we believe in, we have the responsibility to proclaim our faith. The hurting, angry, and lost people in this world who, are, who might criticize you are only doing it because they see a hope in you that they don't have. People have so many misconceptions about the church. And when we stand back and don't get into it and avoid conversations and don't defend our faith or even let alone proclaim it, all we're doing is supporting those misconceptions. Church, we've got to break the mold. We've got to tell people about who Jesus is. We've got to do it. You know, um, you all have heard me talk about my passion about LSU. Um, I cannot lie to you all. The loss last night hurt me. And I don't mean that like in a funny way. Like it really did. Um, and it makes me upset to think about that it had that effect on me. Right? I talked about this with James. If you all remember the Auburn game earlier this season when it got real tight, my parents know I was watching it with them. I had to get up and leave. I had to get up and leave the house and just go drive and not listen to it because I was so upset. And I hated the way it was making me feel. But last night, no amount of talking about it and having conversations about, oh, well, what if this would have happened or that would have happened? No amount of that could help. (laughs) I was just upset. I tried my best to laugh it off and smile about it in front of our students. We watched the game at Mandy and Dwayne Strickland's house last night. Kevo made us some awesome brisket, so I celebrated that brisket. It was so good, but it was, it was hard. I tried to laugh it off in front of everybody. When I got in my car, I was angry. I was so angry. You know, when LSU loses, I make it a point to wear LSU gear the next day, even if it's just my watch like I'm wearing today. And that's so silly, and I usually don't tell people about it. Um, but it's just kind of my own way, my own little way of defending what I'm passionate about, of saying that whether it's going good or going bad, um, I'm invested in this. I'm passionate about this. I'm going to defend it, good or bad. The last thing I want anyone ever calling me is fair weather, right? Or bandwagon or anything like that. That could be the worst insult I could think about. You see, I don't mind being passionate about things. I don't mind being passionate about things at all. God has made me passionate. God has made me care very deeply about things. God has made me an emotional man. Y'all have seen that before. Y'all have seen me cry more times than I'm happy about. My parents and my family have seen me cry more times than I'm happy to admit. But God has made me care very deeply about things. And I get invested. And I'm not going to apologize for it. But this does mean that the things that I'm passionate about are obvious. When I'm passionate about something, it's obvious. 
Is my faith in Christ obvious? Is my passion for my faith in Jesus Christ as obvious as my fandom of a bunch of 18 to 21 year olds whose performance has no effect on me as a person at all? Is my passion for Jesus, who has completely changed who I am, is it as obvious as my fanship of a team? Is my passion for Jesus as obvious as my hobbies that I love doing? Am I consistently working to develop my faith? Am I defending my faith? And am I telling people about this hope that I have in Jesus? Or am I only passionate about things that don't matter? Y'all, this is what I struggled with all week. Because when Peter's talking about suffering for righteousness sake, that's word suffer meaning to labor and to strive after in this context. It is basically a call for the readers to say, is this worth it to you? Is it worth it? Is this faith, is this life worth it? And I struggle with that question so much. And I've had to work through it and I'm not done. (laughs) I'm not done working through it. But church, this is the same question for all of us today. Am I consistently working to develop my faith? Am I working at being passionate about my faith? Am I doing what's required to make sure that I'm all about this? Do my actions back up what my mouth says? Am I defending my faith? And am I telling people about this hope that I have in Jesus? Believers, that is, that's the question today. That's the question that during this next time that we need to struggle through, that we need to labor through. For some of us, it might feel like suffering, but we need to ask ourselves those questions. Is it worth it? And does my life say that it is? And for some of you in here, you might be saying, wow, I've never like, I've just kind of been in church, or maybe this is my first time in church. I've never heard about a relationship with Jesus. I never heard about being passionate about Jesus. I just thought you kind of came to church. I want to make sure that no one walks out of here without hearing that Jesus is absolutely worth it. That the love of Christ has changed my life completely. I'm not doing at all what I thought I'd be doing when I was in high school thinking about what the future would be. You know what? It's man, it's been for the better. And I've been so blessed. The love of Christ has changed my life. He has saved me. And that's the same thing He wants for everyone. So the response today is to ask yourself these questions. Basically, is it worth it to me? Or also to say, have I ever even begun a faith relationship with Jesus to begin with? Um, As always, this altar is open. There's nothing special about this altar. Um, But if you feel that you need to come and labor and work through some of these things, it's open. I'll be down here at the front to talk. Um, Shane's going to lead us in worship.